In Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2, we read these incredible words, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. None of us can imagine the agony and shame of the cross for our Lord Jesus, rejected by men, rejected by God. And yet, Jesus Christ endured it, we are told, because he was motivated by joy. Reverend Spurgeon, what was the joy that motivated our Savior's sacrifice? My friends, this is a thought that must melt a rock and make a heart of iron move. The joy which was set before Jesus was principally the joy of saving you and me. I know it was the joy of fulfilling his Father's will, of sitting down on his Father's throne, of being made perfect through suffering. But still, I know that this is the grand great motive of the Saviour's suffering the joy of saving us. Do you know what the joy is of doing good to others? Of all joys which God has left in this poor wilderness, this is one of the sweetest, that they might get money to buy bread. Have you heard the woman's story of the griefs of her husband? Have you listened when you have heard the tale of imprisonment, of sickness, of cold or hunger, of thirst, and have you never said, I will clothe you, I will feed you. Have you felt that divine joy when your gold has been given to the poor and your silver has been dedicated to the Lord? When you bestowed it upon the hungry and you have gone aside and said, God forbid that I should be self-righteous, but I do feel it is worth living for, to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and to do good to my poor suffering fellow creatures. Now, this is the joy which Christ felt. It was the joy of feeding us with the bread of heaven, the joy of clothing poor naked sinners in his own righteousness, the joy of finding mansions in heaven for homeless souls, of delivering us from the prison of hell and giving us the eternal enjoyments of heaven. But why should Christ look on us? Why should he choose to do this for us? Oh, my friends, we never deserved anything at his hands. As a good old writer says, When I look at the crucifixion of Christ, I remember that my sins put him to death. I see not Pilate, but I see myself in Pilate's place, bartering Christ for honor. I hear not the cry of the Jews, but I hear my sins yelling out, Crucify him, crucify him. I see not iron nails, but I see my own iniquities fastening him to the cross. I see no spear, but I behold my unbelief piercing his poor wounded side. It is the opinion of the Romanist that the very man who pierced Christ's side was afterwards converted and became a follower of Jesus. I do not know whether that is the fact but I know it is the case spiritually. I know that we have pierced the Saviour. I know that we have crucified Him. And yet, strange to say, the blood which we fetched from those holy veins has washed us from our sins and has made us accepted in the Beloved. Can you understand this? Here is manhood mocking the Saviour, parading Him through the streets, 
nailing him to a cross, and then sitting down to mock at his agonies. And yet, what is there in the heart of Jesus but love to them? He is weeping all this while that they would crucify him. Not so much because he felt the suffering, though that was much, but because he could not bear the thought that men whom he loved could nail him to the tree. That was the unkindest stab of all. Jesus had to endure the stab in his inmost heart and to know that his elect did it, that his redeemed did it, that his own church was his murderer, that his own people nailed him to the tree. Can you think, beloved, how strong must have been the love that made him submit even to this? Imagine, you have an enemy who all his life long has been your enemy. His father was your enemy and he is your enemy too. There is never a day passes but you try to win his friendship. But he spits upon your kindness and curses your name. He does injury to your friends, and there is not a stone he leaves unturned to do you damage. As you are going home, today, you see a house on fire. The flames are raging and the smoke is ascending up in one black column to heaven. Crowds gather in the street and you are told there is a man in the upper chamber who will be burnt to death. No one can save him. You say, why? That is my enemy's house, and you see him at the window. It is your own enemy, the very man. He is about to be burned alive. Full of loving kindness, you say, I will save that man if I can. He sees you approach the house. He puts his head out of the window and curses you. An everlasting blast upon you, he says. I would rather perish than that you should save me. Can you imagine yourself, then, dashing through the smoke and climbing the blazing staircase to save him? And can you conceive that when you get near him, he struggles with you and tries to roll you in the flames? Can you conceive your love to be so potent that you can perish in the flames rather than leave him to be burned? You say, I could not do it. It is above flesh and blood to do it. But Jesus did it. We hated him, we despised him, and when he came to save us, we rejected him. When his Holy Spirit comes into our hearts to strive with us, we resist him. But he will save us. No, he himself braved the fire that he might snatch us as brands from eternal burning. The joy of Jesus was the joy of saving sinners. The great motive, then, with Christ in enduring all this was that He might save us. That answer to the question, what was the joy that motivated our Saviour's sacrifice, was provided during a Sunday morning sermon preached on the 30th of January, 1859, titled, The Shameful Sufferer. The joy of Jesus was the joy of saving sinners. That's you, that's me. Incredible. I hope that this has been a blessing to you, that perhaps it has stirred you toward greater faithfulness to Him, to making that hard decision for Him, and to make Him the joy of perhaps your sacrifice. I leave that with you. Until next time, 
The Lord bless and keep you.